0: Welcome back to the Dropping In Surf Show. My name is Rob Case. I am a paddling technique coach operating out of Northern California. I'm honored to be joined today by Matt Warshaw, the masterful historian of surfing. The countless hours he's put in to provide us with a library of historical accounts and photos and videos, it goes above and beyond a normal job he was kind enough to share some of his time to join me to discuss how science fits in or has fit in the history of surfing. We find Matt stuck in Hawaii on the North Shore, isolating after a positive COVID test. He'd like me to apologize for any COVID brain hiccups on his part, but all I witnessed was pure genius. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt Warshaw, and please go subscribe to the Encyclopedia of Surfing, so that Matt can continue to chronicle our wonderful surfing history. His work is extremely high quality and important for posterity, and he asks so little of us. Let's be good stewards and support this worthy endeavor. Well, could definitely be in worse places. That's pretty awesome timing. Definitely,
1: yeah. On the other hand, look, at you're stuck with me, and not only am I unprepared, as I usually am, but I'm unprepared with the virus, so uh, uh, get the editing get your editing skills. This is going to be, uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about or how this is going to go.
0: Yeah. now our show is pretty casual. Um, we try to focus on topics around the science and math within surfing and try to mix those two together, but we get off topic a okay. lot. Um, what, what I thought we could talk about, cause I, I hadn't really thought about this too much um, in, in my studies uh, of, of paddling especially, but I've never really thought of going through this thought process of talking about history of math and science within surfing, because for me, I think the culture didn't really dictate growing up. Like you didn't really, you didn't, we didn't have coaches, you didn't have coaches, you know, and Science wasn't really thought of in a formal manner in surfing. But if you, as I started thinking about it, I thought, man, there's a ton of science within surfing history. Um, so I figured who's, who better to talk to about history than you.
1: There's uh, two things come to mind. First of all, you're at, you're right. And we met at Surf Simply, right. You and yeah. I. Mm-hmm. And so that's a place that is trying to bring some sort of rigor and some Um, some order to a process. I don't know if they're bringing, I guess they're bringing science to it, to a process that, you know, traditionally has just been, certainly was true for me. Um, Somebody, you get a board somehow and someone points you to the beginner's break Mm -hmm. and you you put in the 10,000 hours, like they say, right? And I still think, that there's no that that is still essential to whatever we're going to do as surfers in terms of getting better um that you you go out and you you watch somebody who's better than you and you try to do what they're doing you you know you that that I still feel like that is the the number one that's the best um piece of advice I would ever give anybody was to, you just have to the best piece of advice to give someone surfing is uh, be 10 years old and, and have months of time in front of you where you can do it. And I think and, and facetiously, but the point is you need a lot of time and you need to just be out in the water. There's nothing, there's no substitute for just water time. Yeah. Um, I And, and, but that, you know, that's a guy I'm 62 and that's, you know, so I didn't have any of the thing that, I don't know if I would have veiled myself of the kind of things that you do, the kind of things that surf simply does. I probably would have, because I always wanted to go forward as fast as I could. Um, But there was no, yeah, there was, and there wasn't much science involved in the sport that I can remember getting my hands into when I started in 1968, but there Science had come to the sport in, in two ways, with, with boards, of course, and I'm thinking here especially of Bob Simmons, who um, was, I think, a Cal, Poly, a Cal Poly math grad, or at least he went, you know, anyway, he was, he was so deep into uh, numbers and, and, and formula and everything that it probably. I mean, at some point, it was good for the boards he was making, but at some point, I think he he almost ignored just sort of what was hap- how the boards were working because he would the formula the, the the numbers would dictate everything that he was doing, and there's a whole there was a whole sort of dichotomy between Bob Simmons, the genius, the man armed with math and science, and then Dale Velsey, who did everything you know the the surfing cowboy who did everything by feel. Mm-hmm. everything and he like he couldn't he would just look up at at simmons and say what are you talking about oh i have no just quit take that you know and 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 you know he sim uh Velzi would make a board and go write it and come back in and just say "I you know it it needs more it needs to be softer here more curve here and you know he i don't think you know if he could do division I would be surprised so there but but Simmons was would literally I think just draw out formula all about I can't think of there's a there's a there was a there was a famous book on hulls and and how boats went through water that was his bible that he believed could all be applied to surfing which I don't think is true but it was put them on the right track, you know, but Simmons was so deep into science really early on. And that also extended to how he felt about, he knew, I think more than most people did about the science of, of storms and waves and all that and bathymetry. But the other guy I wanted to mention and this, let me see if my COVID brain will allow me to um, pull the name out. I think Walter monk from scripts was doing a lot of things with the science of storms and wave formation and right. who's the other guy who wrote waves and beaches that book it's so good um again i this is just i'm i'm foggy in the head but there was some science being done with regard to um uh swells storms wave formation period height all that kind of stuff interestingly was all there and available for a lot of years before surfers got around to finally picking it up and going oh this maybe waves don't come from earthquakes from the far east you know (laughs) because if you read Gidget it's pretty funny I love that book a much better book than a movie but there's a little scene in Gidget where You know, one of the surfers is talking about where waves come from, and it's you know, oh, there was a was a big shaker, and oh, we're gonna get more surf this year because of all the nuclear testing, and it's all this just crazy (laughs) ass stuff. And you know, oh, the surf's gonna really come up because of the tide, and da-da-da. And that was probably pretty accurate in terms of what people thought of, yeah, science-wise, with regard like to wave science at the time, even though there was already there, since World War II, there have already been books about you know how waves are formed and stuff. So another case of surfers maybe being a little slow on the uptake, uh, you know, on the science.
0: Yeah, it's you're talking about really formalized scientific method um, with the rigor that we see in today's universities. And i I would also say that that there's another kind of more casual kind of science that that um, that has been done since the very beginning of, of surfing um, in that it's trial and error, it's testing, mm. it's proving and disproving things. And sure. And if you look at, you know, guys like grubby Clark, you know, I don't think he had much of a degree, but he figured out how to make foam and make good foam that, right. you know, is, is, is used. So it's almost science was born casually or, or informally out of necessity um, and merging what you're talking about with Velzy, with a, a Simmons. Simmons was just putting words and putting calculations around what Velzy already knew, uh, in a way. That's that's right. And and
1: it's funny with Simmons, there was a real limitations because Simmons was so convinced that the, that the formula that, that that you could plot it all out that it got in his way. Mm-hmm um simmons also had that um had the bad arm and so so simmons was making boards um for him for himself and also simmons didn't really want to turn simmons wanted just to go fast everybody else as soon as turning was a thing wanted to turn right so simmons reading these books that he had on, on on hydrodynamics was I think mostly just trying to build a board that would go as fast as possible from the, uh, the top of the point at Malibu to the pier. Mm-hmm. And he did, he made some boards that went faster than other boards, I suppose. although something that goes faster on a straight line, I mean, again, I'm no scientist, but you know, if you're, you're actually going faster if you've got a board that turns, because if you could take the guy who's turning and take his line, it's gonna stretch out to be a longer line than the one Bob took going straight. Yeah. Um, so Simmons was, was the smartest guy involved in board design then and maybe ever uh, but he was pursuing a pretty individual um, particular uh, track and, and the boards that Velzi made. And then later on the boards that um, uh, Joe Quig and Kivlin and Tommy Zahn made were um, much closer or much more important or much, I should say, the real antecedents to what we ended up with in terms of board design. So Simmons boards, Simmons did some things with uh, foiled rails and a little bit of lift that were really important that arguably you couldn't have gotten the next level, the next set of boards without that. Although I think somebody else would have thought of that. But Quig in particular, I think is the guy that I tend to think of as um, uh, the, the person who, surfing on the track that it sort of is now before that it was planks and hollow boards and and you know I don't know what I don't know what Joe Quigg thought of I don't know how you know I think he was more like Velzy, where he was you, you'd make a board and you, you'd go try it I mean he had a you know one of his best designs was he had a dream of riding away from beyond the river mouth at Rincon all the way to the to highway 101 <laughs> and in that dream somehow he came out of that dream and what he decided to do was to take you know to take a board and to remove I think two inches like where the stringer would have been I don't think it had a stringer and to just to close the board up so he just ended up with a narrower more rocket-like board mm-hmm. so you know that's not science that's he's He had a vision, you know, and that Uh, board ended up working great. It became a pintail, and you you can see a sketch of that board. And so there's Joe Quig going, uh, you know, entirely on sort of intuition. I had a dream. I woke up. I cut this big strip out of my board, and it went great. (laughs) And so, you know, I don't know Simmons. That would have probably just Simmons would have just that would have blown his head off. He would have been so. (laughs) That's what I understand. Where's the numbers? Where's the formula?
0: What about a guy like uh what about a guy like Hobie? Was he scientifically minded? I mean, he was more business. You said Simmons was more um driven for his own gain. Hobie was really trying to do more. Right.
1: I don't know that Hobie, I'm trying to think of what Hobie's contribution to me wasn't didn't have much to do with um design or uh Hobie's contribution had to do with um, he didn't invent the first surf shop, but um, it was, it was, he was, he was a good marketer. He was a good, um, you know, he was a good uh, business. He was a good CEO, mm-hmm. you know, Hobie just hired, you know, m- maybe his best skill of all was he hired great people mm-hmm. and he just kept that big, ship Hobie surfboards and all the other spinoffs. He just kept the thing. That's really unfair. I shouldn't say that he was really good. He did have ideas. He, uh, you know, he had some ideas with regards to gliders. Um, he did have ideas. He liked to work on things. Um, but I tend to think of Hobie as being, I mean, I, I think he's been called like the, you know, the Henry Ford of surfboard manufacturing. He figured out how to make more boards faster than other people. Right. I'm always surprised at how few boards it actually was when you go back and you think, oh, there was a surf boom going on. And, you know, you find out that Hobie made on his best year, you know, 7,000 boards or something. It was all, the numbers were always a lot smaller than I, I could be wrong about that number, but I'm, I was always, I'm always surprised at how, f- it, you know, it wasn't millions of boards. It was thousands of boards.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um another way the other person to talk about it would be greeno you know i mean greeno you know probably did more for surfboards if if you count in the if you count in inspiring others to move in the right direction greeno did more for surfboards than modern performance surfboards than anybody and again you know one was one of his breakthrough ideas was to look at a uh a tuna or a marlin or something I forget what kind of fish it was and he was looking at you know the tail fin and go oh I'm going to take that tail fin. and I think he might he was such a fisherman you know he probably I mean he killed a, a fish a tuna a marlin or something you know flipped it upside down and basically made a surfboard fin from that so yeah. um, that's like like Joe Quick waking up from a dream you just sort of you go with what inspires you. And I think they all had a lot of misfires too, but the things that did work for those guys that weren't scientific, when they worked, they, they worked.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and again, going back to science really is having an idea like that, testing it out. And really this, the, the more rigorous scientific method would be someone coming along and saying, well, that that's not proven because I've just disproved that. And it's because of this, for example. So, well, and, the,
1: and the other thing I should go to going back to Greeno is that he had that one fin, and it worked, and he just kept modifying it. Yeah. So there was all these stories where, when Nat Young went and won the 1966 World Titles, he was riding a board that the famous board called Sam, that he had made. But Nat was always really careful, or really. <laughs> Gracious and quick to say, it had a greeno fin. So Nat made the board, but the if you'll remember the you know the longboard fins up until the mid '60s were those big clunky. They used to call them D fins. D fins, yeah. Which you know, every time I think of how obstinate surfers can be and how stuck in their ways they are, it's how long the sport stuck with that big anchor of a fin sitting on the back of the board. Like what a, it doesn't get cited that often, but, you know, making a smaller narrow based rake back fin. And I don't know if Greeno invented that idea, but he certainly did the most with it. Mm -hmm. If any one thing changed how boards work, I mean, that would be in the top, you know, we talk about the shortboard revolution, but before that happened, that nice narrow based, Rakeback back fin was really a big, the, the D-fin was, I, I, I don't you know, where did that come from? Boats don't like, it just seems like the weirdest, the, one of the real mistakes that surf design out of surf design. So the D-fin was I think already on its way out by the time uh, Greeno did that, that raked back fin. But um, somebody I was talking with was saying his main recollection of the 1966 world titles was Nat Young and Greeno in between heats sanding the fin. They just kept refining the fin throughout the contest. So <laughs> George and Nat and all those guys, when they'd have an idea, the idea didn't just take. They were always, always, always refining it. Yeah, always testing it. and You know, so I don't know if that's... I, I don't know. You know, I don't, I I'm, I'm getting confused of what the definition of sort of science is mm-hmm. and the way we're using it because it doesn't seem like scientific. It just seems like you're going to take something the way anybody would. And if you've got the, that, that kind of mindset, you look at something and you go, well, that's pretty good, but how do I make it better?
0: Right. Right. And that's the thing that, that what I think science is never just a set in stone kind of thing. It's always evolving. It's always moving on and, what's interesting about surfing in science is that they're they're almost at odds a lot of times because surfing at least in today's culture is driven through marketing you look at you know look at the marketing that you receive all the time on boards right oh and right. there's lots of keywords on oh yeah this is a great this this is a perfect daily driver well how do you know how I surf it might not be a good daily driver for right you, right and right. what's really interesting if you look at all the other sports you got golf you got tennis there's so much science driven behind even the marketing right this is this has been proven to hit the ball farther with this club head right and they've done test after test after test why do you think surfers or surf culture is so slow to adopt something like that
1: well maybe if if you're if you you want to hit a good tee shot the only thing that you care about is how far the ball goes Mm -hmm. so this you know all this stuff gets back to how unique surfing is as a in in the world of sport and how sometimes when I think about encyclopedia of surfing like what am I doing with this and it just seems like the overarching thing is to continue to kind of keep it away from the rest of sport because it is so different but like a driver is meant to hit a, a ball farm. and that's all that. That's kind of all that counts. And ten of us going surfing on a on a three foot day, all ten of us might want to get something a little different out of that surf. So there's no way to market to us ten people. There isn't a particular right way to ride. You know, I mean, if it's if it's eight foot pipeline, the thing that you want. There's a certain thing that everyone's trying to do. But it, you know, on an, a different day a small a a, a, a chest high day in, in in a nice fun beach break somewhere um 10 people might want to ride that day in 10 different slightly different ways right um so um so it's purpose driven well i'd say it's i'd say it's just sort of individually driven like like Yeah. A daily driver. That doesn't, you're right. That doesn't mean anything to somebody who wants to, who's really, I I was just got out of the water and there was a long, I was at a Cameland, there was a longboarder out and I'm riding like a, I'm still not feeling up to strength. So I was riding sort of a seven, two double step up full, kind of a full board that I would ride. And another guy was out there riding a little tiny fish. Right. So, um, and again it was head high soft reef waves so there's no daily driver for the three of us this guy's got his thing and i've got mine and the other guy has his thing yes i mean the science the, the so the board the board stuff um, yeah the marketing takes over because but the the science stuff just to just to hang a right here real quick would be to me, where you there isn't much too much argument would be on the, you know, what when I wake up, the first thing I want to know is what direction is the swell coming from and what's it going to be doing, and all those numbers are pretty solid. Like there's not much. Well, there's yeah. So in so, terms you
0: know, of how, what we know, it, using today's technology, that is that is our belief, right? That that the swell forecasts, the wind, all of that is is actually during, but how many times have you showed up to the beach and that's been wrong. Right. So it may be beyond when we're, we've passed, they're going to come up with better technology for, for weather forecasting. That's for sure.
1: But it doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't um, negate that. Science maybe doesn't like, um, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that, that I put, you can put, you can really sort of, set your every all of us are looking at the same numbers to figure out where the surf's going to go and it it is true that the that that the our ability to um to the accuracy of all that while it's getting better all the time still doesn't come through but but there's no there's no gainsaying the the importance of science when it comes to all the wave stuff the surfboard stuff i do kind of go well you know don't maybe you know there is no perfect volume for a a surfer of my height and weight it depends on what I want to do so the numbers are all really soft and the numbers can be wrong the weather related numbers can be wrong but they're not I mean in other words they can be inaccurate but they're not um you can't say that's the wrong um you're just doing the best to get the Right.
0: The science, the science behind again. it, you know that there's high pressure and low pressure, and that is the science behind what you're talking about. Right. And so far, that, that hasn't been disproven. But, you know, so the forecasts and the models that they've developed might not work as planned. Well, somebody but, might say,
1: this is the, I've scientifically decided this is the board you should ride. And I said, well, yeah. I don't want to ride that board. That's not what I want to do. And, yeah. and somebody can't say, here's the best science I have for the swell today. I'm going to say,
0: well, thank you. And I hope yeah. you're right. Yeah,
1: You know what I mean? Like you totally. can't say, well, give me a different kind of, yeah. of science. So, Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I, I bring this topic up because I, I, I've chatted with other um, scientists within the surf space and uh, they do a lot of great work that the surfing culture just hasn't really accepted yet. It's a lot of really useful stuff. Right now, CSU San Marcos is doing a lot of wetsuit studies, for example. Mm-hmm. And these studies are showing exactly where we lose the most heat. Um, And some of these wetsuits aren't designed to combat that, right? Why? Well, well, they don't know. They don't understand why that research is just kind of pushed aside yet. And I think in time, I think in time we'll all kind of come around, Um, but it goes back to, you know, Velzy feeling something out. I think each of us as individual surfers need to feel out. Does it work for me as an individual?
1: Right. Right, yeah. I think that's that's. I think that's right too. It it, and you're right. There is a there's an especial there is a special sort of um, pressure, and I still feel it even at my age to like ride a board, you know, to ride to not ride an uncool board. And the hardest I pushed back on that was um, not long before I left San Francisco. So that was 2011. Um, but at some point. I had ridden a surf tech, you know, a pop out. um, It was an Al Merrick Flyer Uh 2. I think what had happened is our son had just been born and we were, we were actually going on a few trips with the family and, you know, the best thing about not surfing as much as I used to and not caring as much as I used to is one of the best things is no longer, I don't travel with boards anymore. I just borrow or, and at one point, anyway, we went to um, Costa Rica and I, I think I'd called ahead and I was riding, a I think a 6'2 Surf Tech Flyer 2. And you, it was, I think the most common one. And, and I just found out I could get the same board on the other end, right? And, and so I love being able to just to go, but I also remember walking down to Ocean Beach with my uh, my pop out surfboard and hoping people wouldn't like see me. I was embarrassed <laughs> I was hiding afraid. it
0: until it got in the water and who why should I you know
1: I don't but I did care and so you know I still want the boards to look cool and I still don't like riding a fun board mm-hmm. for no other reason than it's just stubbornness and, and and again wanting to still be cool so the marketers the marketers are are are, are it's a powerful force isn't it yeah yeah
0: yeah it, it's, it brings us into kind of today's era of surf science, which it's still at its infancy. And, and when I say surf science, it's more of the rigorous academic one that you and I kind of think about in our heads versus the casual kind of science. And I'm looking at some notes I took. There was a, a bit pretty big surge in studies that I was looking for um, around the 2012, 2010, 2012 era. Um, But that wasn't the earliest science that had been done or at least attempted to be done. Um, It goes back. um, When I first started studying paddling or swim technique um, was back in 1999. And back then there was really only swim research that goes back to the sixties. So I used a lot of that as kind of my basis. And then all of a sudden in 2001, 2005, Um, A bunch of research came out of uh, University of Western Australia, Griffith University, a lot of Australia driven. Um, And then even older than that, 1991, Southern Cross University, once again in Australia, uh, was studying heart rates and energy expenditure in surfers. And then the earliest I could find, which blew my mind when I found it, was 1984. There was a study done out of Philip Institute of Technology, the physiological assessment of surfers. And that was the earliest I could find in terms of an academic paper. And and now I'm seeing it more and more. 17, 18, 19, there's papers left and right. I think when you look at kind of just the history of that little gap from 84 to today, and really the bulk of it kind of came in 2010 and on it's just a bunch of surfers that were like, you're making me do a thesis. All right. Well, I like surfing. And so let's try to apply this. And that kind of, it's, it's fascinating for me to see kind of that, that beginning, that origin of people starting to think that way, because from, you know, 1999, there was almost nothing. And to today there's, there's a lot more to look at and test and, and we're still very much in, in its infancy. And I always compare it to swim research, which, has been 60 years in the making, um, and is still kind of evolving. Uh, that's but-
1: back to the, that's back to the thing a little bit about, um, about, um, the driver, I suppose, like the, the, you know, getting a good golf club, which is that swimming competitive swimming is there's nothing more than time is everything. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all about how you finish and, that. Surfers will never, I think. I, I, um, uh, it, there's no, there's no, there isn't a, there isn't a, a thing that you're, unless you're on the world tour, I suppose. There isn't, you know, everyone surfs for different reasons and has their own uh, definition of what success is or what a good day surfing is, and yeah, and that can even change from day to day for a certain person. So, a, an old guy who's coming out of COVID might go out and get one wave and feel like that's a, that's a, that's a success. I've had a good day surfing where the same guy last week might say, God, I only got one wave. What a, what a coup. So.
0: um, The metric is the metrics metrics and, uh, and money drive the research at the end of the day. I mean, you look at swimming, there's a lot of money in swimming. There's a lot of money in golf. Right. Um, and and main and there's a lot of people in those sports so you can you can use the science to market but it's it's you have metrics that are defined whereas what you're saying is that surfing there's not really a defined metric for riding a wave you can ride it however you want
1: but you're not selling i don't think it it doesn't seem to me that ultimately what you're doing rob is is about a metric it's about a, a uh, it's about efficiency. Like you're not trying to get someone necessarily to improve a time. You want them to be able to surf longer. You want them to be able to catch more waves. Yeah.
0: And So I'm that's my metric.
1: Of, yeah. What's that? Well, there that's you my, go. That's, that, that's that, my metric. Right. That's My, right. my, my metric, but, both but, you're right. but to, you're right. to
0: your point, to your point, there's no gold medal in paddle. And I tell people that all the time. Right. right? And so I might teach somebody, Hey, you know what? There's, use a lower gear in your paddling, get out just, you know, a few seconds slower, but you're going right. to save a ton of energy. Right. And they're like, okay, cool. I'm cool with that. But in swimming, that's a no, no.
1: <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. It's funny. Um, because I only surf three or four times a year. And I remember when we moved to Seattle from San Francisco, I was so sure that where the, where the, uh, where I was going to just fall off the cliff was paddling because that would just seem I wasn't up until that point, I was paddling, I don't know, 10 or 20 hours a week. I did that for years and years and years. And it was, and here I am, you know, 10 years where I've essentially been retired and I am constantly frustrated and uh, disappointed and cringy about, um, I pop up what I can do on a wave mm. and I am on the other side amazed and delighted that the thing that comes back to me the fastest is um, uh, a kind of a cruise level I, I, I don't have a paddle burst like I used to but getting onto the beach and paddling whatever a few hundred yards out to Kami land, I can do that at a level that I automatically regulate to get out there without being winded. So, and I can, you know, the, the fact that my, my paddling uh, has stayed with me more, I, I think is probably more important than my surfing itself, because it means that I'm, not done before i even start i'm sitting in a lineup after a few minutes feeling okay well let's now let's move on to the next thing but the that fundamental thing that so that everything else is built on yeah which i watched you teach people like you know the being able to just put myself into that i guess it's sort of a second gear to get out for a two or three hundred yard paddle is a hundred percent intact and it i just never would have guessed that would be the case
0: yeah when did you start surfing again what age eight yeah so that has a big part of it if if uh, not to get off the topic of history but if you look at anybody that's been in the water before the age 12 13 and if they're in the water enough they will begin to figure out how to move through water efficiently and effectively 100 you know. percent. so th- th-
1: to that same thing it's so it's so interesting because my son who, who i don't think is going to be a surfer he's 12 but he does like just to he, he's he's always like when we visit the beach he just likes to put his feet in and run into surf run out jump over ways that uh you know he feels what everybody but but uh this trip he said dad let's go body surfing let me teach me how to body surf and I said, oh, this that is great. I've been wanting to hear that, it'd be so fun. Water's warm, we had some gentle sort of shore breaky waves. And uh, I've been body surfing since I was you know, six or something. And um, uh, I didn't realize until I was trying to teach him how ridiculously hard it is to catch a wave, a small wave, just you know, standing in waist deep water because I can do it as easy as I can get up and walk over here and shut the door. I, I can just jump into a wave and get to the beach because it's, this is just like what you're saying. If you spend enough time in the water um, or if you spend enough time paddling, like I learned this morning, I it's... It's unlike I, I don't I, I wish my pop up was the same way, you know that seems to just be disappearing from me for whatever for reasons I can't quite figure out, but parts of being in the water, body surfing and paddling, swimming seem to be uh come to e- come as easy to me and seem to be as ingrained in me as just getting up off a chair and walking, yeah, you
0: yeah, know? it's interesting you bring that up because i <clears throat> I always look at like John Florence paddling and it's so natural and it's, it's it's something that he's been doing his whole life since very young right and just every day after school he's in the water and that got me into seeing differences and this is again something that's very specific to me but i see differences in paddling technique by region oh really and i found this really interesting like so how does how does that get passed down because you know there, i wasn't around i wasn't teaching people how to do it how does something like that get passed down? So there's Southern California paddle stroke. There's a Santa Cruz paddle stroke. There's an Australia paddle stroke. There's a Hawaii paddle stroke. And it's fascinating to watch these differences. And, and these are generalized right, right. observations that I've made. And it, to me, I'm trying to figure out the why. Like what? Well, how does something like that get formed? Well, it, it's from what you started with our conversation. You're watching them. You're observing others in the lineup and you're replicating them and Mm -hmm. not just when they're riding, but also when they're paddling, Mm -hmm. you might even get to the point where you're in the lineup so often that the older folks or, or other surfers are telling you, yeah, you should paddle this way, or you should take off this way, or you should ride this way. And that knowledge get passed on and passed on and through, through repetition and repetition and repetition, it becomes ingrained in that region. Right. Interesting. And it's almost scientific in that its own little way, And then someone from the outside comes and says, actually, there's a better way or 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 actually this Australia crawl stroke is better or the Hawaii way is better or, you know, and that's where science would be that kind of foundational base to say, well, science says this. You can do it however you want. But this is what science says.
1: What about the possibility that, you know, some kind of a, a Hawaiian paddle stroke is best for here and maybe a, an Australian paddle stroke is best for surfing the gold coast. Is that, a, do you think that there's like a regional thing or do you think there's actually nope. a, a it's, sub-
0: it's more passed down and cultural based. Like if you look at the Australian paddle stroke, it, it is driven more from swimming than anything else from, from, from competitive and formal swimming. Right. And if you look at the Australian culture, they have these swim derbies all the time when people are growing up. It's, it's a very, Popular thing. Whereas in California, we didn't, I mean, swimming is big, but it's not that big.
1: Right. Um,
0: And then you look at Southern California, specifically the San Clemente area, I call it the San Clemente paddle because it's just such a high back arch and it's really proud paddle. Um, And that was just passed on just by observation. This is how you paddle. And when I talk to people from these regions, I'm like so. So, how did you learn how to paddle? How would you learn how to surf? Oh, this is what they told me. I always start right. my sessions with. What? Do you have any just dying questions about paddling? Oh yeah, I've always been told this. I've always wondered if that's right. And I never really say that something's right or wrong because even the science of what I've found, it's not there yet. Uh, but I say this is what the, these are what the facts say. Right? And right. You Decide whether it's good for you. Right. Um, the one the Hawaii one is is probably the most interesting one because they are the most affluent in the ocean in the water environment because they're in the water and they learn it naturally that way. And it just goes back to John, John, John is a perfect example of that, but a lot of the Hawaiian culture is, Hey, we're going to go in the water from a very early age. Right. And again, getting back to that, that's probably the best teacher you can, you can have is just to put Teddy in the water over and over again. Right. That's right. I was just
1: watching Mason Ho's latest video and uh, even though he's in Scotland doing his weird Oh, I saw
0: that, the slabby thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, nobody but somebody, I don't think anybody except a Hawaiian could, just because of what you're saying, Mason Ho has probably been in the water. Well, I mean, he probably never wasn't in the water. He was probably in the water from when he was in utero. And And so... I, I will never, you know, even all this said, I'll never understand how come we haven't seen the episode where he, um, we have to look at his face split in two. It just doesn't make, it's so nuts. Yeah. But, but I think it speaks exactly to what you're saying that if you, whatever level of comfort I have from being in the water since I was a kid, he has it times 500. Uh, cause it's not just sandy beaches of California, but his running around, I was watching some kids, he grew up at, I think it's Sunset Point. And you've been, you've been to Sunset Point before? And yeah. There's these reefs in between the point and the parking lot. And these kids will, are literally playing on these reefs. And there's this one place where you can sort of stand on this reef and it dips down a little bit and a wave will come up and you can ride the backwash over reef to the incoming wave, and they just smash and go up, and then they take and it's like there were these six kids, boys and girls, probably all middle schoolers, and they were riding boogies and they were riding inflatables, and then they would take the inflatable and ride back to the reef and get smashed up, and like this was all happening in an area that if I didn't see it, I'd say, God, I just want, I don't, I just want to walk right around that. I don't know what I want to be. And they were just playing in that on reef. Waves going this way, going this way, up, down, da da da. Having the best time, and I was, I, I had this thought. I go, oh, that's where Mason Ho got started with you. He started there, and now he's, yeah. doing what he's doing. It's, yeah. you know, it's that a uh, level of comfort and. I remember Chris Malloy once telling me about. Um, I was saying, how come all you guys who serve pipeline a lot don't get hurt more than you do? And he said, because if you, you don't surf there very long without you start to develop a sense of being underwater where you're almost like a, a salmon swimming upstream. So he goes, it's hard for me to explain it to you. But when you're underwater, um, you're doing things without thinking about it to stay off, to stay off the reef. And he was likening, likening it to a, you know, a salmon just jumping over rocks and not getting hit. Yeah.
0: And yeah. I was thinking while you're talking about this is, is what you talked about at the very beginning, when you, when you, the advice you give to somebody when they first start surfing is the first thing you said was become a kid again. And these, these kids, they, they do all the trial and error and it's, it's actually the science behind the 10,000 hours. It's not 10,000, any hours it's 10,000 good hours. And it's actually less than that. They've proven you can, you could do it in five if you're really focused on those hours, Right. right? As a kid, you get through that learning cycle so quickly. It's like so, boom, mistake, and then move on. Boom, mistake, right. move on. And right. then all of a sudden, you're totally comfortable with it. And and in 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 two thousand hours, you have the equivalent of forty thousand hours right. for an adult. And so it's the plasticity of the brain. Uh, and it has
1: to be very similar to what you can learn languages at that age too. Yeah. It, it just comes. It just comes to you. And you see those. You see these kids really young, or even these middle schoolers who are just um you couldn't I don't think you could teach anybody middle-aged to do what they were doing even if they wanted to I don't think you can get that and those kids are just doing the same thing Mason Ho does which is that you just don't without thinking about it you just know how much water is here and how close I can get to the reef yeah and you know you don't need that much water but that's a hard thing to convince a person who's thinking about it and if you're if you're 7 and you're seeing your big brother out there doing it, you're going to do it and you're going to get knocked around a little bit at the beginning. And then you're going to pick it up and do what yeah. he's doing. Or she's yeah.
0: Doing. Yeah. That's why, that's one of the things, some of my clients were like, Hey, do you ever do any like skateboarding coaching? I'm like, no, 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 not for adults. Like yeah, definitely right? not. I mean, when I learned to skateboard, I would eat it so hard, but when you're right. lighter and smaller, right. the consequence wasn't all that bad. Now I eat it and my hips done for like three right. months. <laughs>
1: No skateboarding, you got to leave that behind when you graduate high school.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, but it's the same kind of concept, right? When you learn young, you know how to make a fall. I mean, I watch skateboarders, absolutely, really hard. They know how to fall, right? And I can't do that. And I'm, I'm going to stay in my lane in the water. It's funny (laughs) you bring that up
1: because about six years ago, right when I got invited to go serve Kelly's wave, Kelly's uh, miracle wave, Kelly's monster. And I was super nervous about going to that pool and blowing. I, I was only going to get four waves. And I go, what am I going to do? I got to make sure I don't blow my waves. And I've made a lot of phone calls. And I also got on Amazon and got a skateboard. You know, I'm going to go ride the skateboard just so I can get back to you. Because I'm, I'm in Seattle. I'm not going to go practice surfing. And so I went to my son's school. It's got a big flat uh, yard, a big flat playground with about a, you know, a one degree slant on it. And it turns out that I can still go down and skateboard. I go, this is actually pretty fun. And at some point, you know, two or three weeks later, you know, whatever I hit, I hit a, I hit a rock going really slow, but still. And I fell and it was like you say, it was just shocking. I mean, it was so slow, but I fell and I thought, OK, and I just put it away for a while. I don't, I should And then the next time I fell, I picked it back up. Uh, Somehow subconsciously, I actually realized I still kind of actually know how to fall. There's, you know, there's a way to do it. You know, I fell hands first or did something. Yeah. And I got scraped up again a little bit and I'm not, I'm, I'm not out there skateboarding fast or often, but the ability to fall does stay with you, but it's also nothing I really want to test on pavement too much, <laughs> but I was really happy that uh, I could still fall onto pavement at least. And I mean, you know, knock on wood, nothing
0: broken, but. Um, but again, what, what, at what age did you start skateboarding? Five. Five. Yeah, exactly. So, so from, you know, like that 12, 13 and unders it, that's the time that we implicitly learn through feel.
1: I'm, am, I'm am mm-hmm. never more blown away. And I remember when Ben Ipa died, I was reminded of this. I'm never more blown away by n- nothing seems to me to be a greater accomplishment than the guy or the woman who learns to surf relatively late in life. Like I think Ben Ipa started surfing like, in like when he was, uh, I want to say
0: 18. Yeah, Hadn't Pat O'Connell started fairly late, like in the so. 16th. Well,
1: grew, I grew up in the in the Midwest or in yeah. the Great Lakes or something.
0: Yeah. And it's fascinating. And, but so so this gets to our point of, of of neuroplasticity and the ability to learn as well. Is that even if you are past that kind of time frame, that 1213 bar, it's how well you can learn. There are some going back to linguistics, there are some humans that just have this knack for languages. Then they right. could speak five, six, seven languages, Right. and they are like superhumans. And so, if if we were to kind of look at professional surfing or these these guys that surf really well, they are they have that kind of talent. Plus, they started young, and now that's why they're just so refined right. with their movement. Right, it's incredible. Right. Yeah. Lucky for me, paddling is pretty easy to teach. <laughs> I feel bad for all the surf coaches out there, like the guys that surf simply, because it's once you're on your feet, it's hard to teach those little intricacies that you do with your feet and your ankles and, then, and your legs. And you end
1: up and then you end up getting memed on the internet like the I don't know who who is <laughs> Sterling Spencer and the and uh and the guy from uh Sterling Spencer and the Ragland surf report guy or just oh yeah.
0: Is? You know? They cracked me up, man
1: I know, There's but so I mean that's right. what you end up and, and you know what the original i don't I don't know what they're I don't know what specifically they're making fun of because but it, yeah, that whole thing about learning how to do a bottom turn, like a pump turn on a skateboard that those guys are making fun of mm-hmm. the funny thing about that is whoever was doing that originally actually isn't wrong, like there is a way to get on a skateboard and practice doing your thing, you know, yep. I mean, Gerlach probably will, will teach, teaches that, you know, but it's also so ripe for um, being made fun of. And um, you're doing something that a way is, to, is as more, just as important or more important, but it's um, uh, it's, it's uh, anti memeing You can't really yep. make, you know, paddling.
0: You can, it can be done. Uh,
1: <laughs> I remember, I remember Steve Pesman at one point, uh, At one point during sort of the early Fernando Aguirre part of trying to get surfing to be an Olympic game, Steve Peasant at the journal just said, don't have surfing be in the Olympics. Let it be its own thing. But go back to uh, paddle, go back to surfboard paddling. Paddling is the thing that should be an Olympic sport. Everyone, you know, everyone who surfs paddles have a thing where you can, you know, paddle, you know, do a paddle race, racing, sprint, yeah. you know, do that, let that be the, uh, let that represent surfing the way it used to with the, you know, the Catalina race and all those other races they had yeah. that were all won by surfers, you know? Yeah. So. It'd be boring to watch though, man. <laughs> I'd rather watch um, people paddle than to watch a, a surf contest in shitty waves. Yeah. I would. Because I, I guess because I, I, I can always get into the Olympics. I can always, I always can say, oh, who, you know, how's the Canadian going to, I, and where, you know, how many more laps? And like, and I, uh, to watch uh, surf contest being held in, in subpar waves like the finals at Bells, I just think you've, this is, you're just making a mockery of this. Like, you know, none of these guys who are, none of these guys who are surfing here, and again, I'm going to go back to Bells last week, none of these guys on the beach, nobody would be out in the water on this day, unless you were offering points and money. So like, what a, you know, where everybody, if you, you know, set up a paddle race and everyone's there to win, you know, nobody, everybody was there to win on on the final stage at Bells only because that was in their contract. That was the points, that was the money on offer. But I, you know, I, it, it, it doesn't, it never feels right unless the surf's worth looking at to have a surf contest.
0: But. Well, I think they, they say it a lot. Um, the, the, when we watch contests that the surfers are great and all, but it's the waves that are the feature, right? You know, we, I tune in when the surf is really good. And then now right. I want to see really good surfers in those really good waves. And it all starts. Well, with, yeah, right. Like, or at least,
1: or at least not be watching something that I don't know. I don't know why it's in my, it's in my mind that the baseline, like that, that, the, 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 the the lowest common denominator should be that this is a spot, this is a day that all of these gathered surfers, men and women, would on their own choose to surf. Like, how, how's that for yeah. a, bare, just have a bare minimum? Like, you know what? Is this day good enough for these guys to want to surf yeah. on their own? Yeah, let's go. That's let's how, you know, yeah, and that, that could true. be just a fun air day. Yeah. It could be something, but, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not bells at uh, waist high with a devil offshore wind. <laughs> anyway. I've, yeah. I've been, I've
0: been yeah. 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 No, but, um, why don't we wrap up? I, I gotta go get the kids anyway, but yep. thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. I hope that, uh, this was fun. You know, took your mind yeah. off of what you're dealing with. Oh, <laughs> no, no it, it is fun. I was, I was really looking forward to this. Well, cool, Matt. All right. Uh, take care. Safe travels back and, and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk when we can. Thanks Rob. Um, right, thank I have fun. You,
1: Thanks. Cheers, man. Bye.